a reading from the letter of Paul to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. It's Independence Day, one of three holidays that help us define the summer in the United States. And for those who are counting, it is the 246th birthday of the United States. Happy birthday to us. At first glance, what it means to celebrate independence and what it means to celebrate freedom has certainly changed in recent years. We all feel it. In the New York Times yesterday, Margaret Rankle reminisced. Back then, our neighborhood always threw a block party on the 4th. Children decorated their bicycles and their dogs and careened down the street in once what was generally referred to as a parade. The pot luck was the feature event there was almost never a mention of politics. If I knew a neighbor's political affiliation, it meant that we were friends. And friends in those days granted one another the grace to assume that good prevailed on all sides. We were all proud to be Americans, even if we didn't always agree on which aspects of our sprawling, messy democracy merited pride. Today, that type of scenario might be more the exception than the norm. I see the news too. There seems to be more of a divide in this country than ever before. And while this country is built on the tenets of independence and freedom, our biggest divisions seem to emanate on agreeing what exactly those freedoms are. In fact, just this week, I saw a satirical soundbite that said July 4th was canceled due to a lack of freedom. 
I saw other social movements this week sounding calls to action over preserving freedoms or limiting freedoms, depending on which side of the freedom debate you happen to be on. And most people today seem to be on one side or the other. We celebrate Independence Day in the United States, but when we can't agree on what it means to be American, how can we possibly agree on what it means to have freedom? Or actually believe in a concept of a united United States? I know there are many different Americas and that my experience as a white, heterosexual, cisgender, college-educated woman who has lived the vast majority of my life in either New York City or a 45-mile radius around it is only one tiny narrative in this great American experience. The America I believe in may have some resonance with peers in my demographic who live and move and obtain their information in similar places that I do, but it's not the reality for most of this vast country. Yet, when I try to find the least common denominator of my America, the America I believe in, the least common denominator is the Latin inscription on nearly every piece of U.S. currency, E pluribus unum, meaning out of many, one. It was placed on the currency in 1873 to show that the states were united by a common currency. Its origins were purely economic and practical. But it makes me think of the diversity of our country and how we are all part of one bigger collective. While that phrase moves me, it says nothing about how I vote. It says nothing about my mailing address. It says nothing about my race, my sex, my tax bracket, or any other demographic qualifier. If it says anything, it says something about my faith. Oneness is one of the most enduring tenets of many faiths and spiritual traditions. In Christianity in particular, we are met through one God that meets us through three distinct aspects of the Trinity. Today's reading from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia points to both freedom and oneness. And Paul asks his readers to do something odd with their freedom. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. He implores them to use freedom to be bound by love of neighbor like slaves to one another. That's a pretty strong statement, slaves to one another. He draws a contrast between freedom to do whatever you want and choosing, paradoxically, to bind ourselves in love to others. Theologian Diana Butler Bass says that when we elect to tether our lives to the lives of others, Surrendering self-absorbed desires, we discover virtues that set us on the path to freedom. Paul refers to this as life in the spirit, 
a place of knowing our full humanity in and with God. To put it bluntly, when we drop the self-absorbed part, the oneness starts to come naturally. And Paul points to the most sacred tenet of his Jewish tradition, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. We all know this commandment intuitively, and it plays out through multiple religions and multiple cultures. One of my favorites is the South African philosophy of Ubuntu. Anyone ever heard of that, Ubuntu? Ubuntu has its roots in the Zulu language, and it's loosely translated as I am because you are. It connects us at our individual core to the larger narrative of how we relate to one another. It speaks actually to a larger question of what God is like and how God works through us as individuals. We see God reflected in the other. But going back to that whole America part, what I think we forget is that we have a spiritual obligation to care for one another. Ubuntu is part of who we are too. I wonder what happens if we bring this notion of I am because you are to the dialogues that we have with each other in the halls of government, in schools, in churches, and online. As we take sides in our culture wars and our political affiliations, and as we look at individual freedom, the fact that we are all interrelated at our core seems forgotten, especially when we take our sides and disdain the other. When we connect to God through one another, we're given a new life and abundant grace just by giving it all up and seeing God in someone else. Freedom does not mean to have a life without any constraints, a life of no obligations. It comes back to Ubuntu. We belong to each other. We are one body in Christ. It's not about what I am personally allowed to do. It's what's good for all of us, good for that one body. We are some part of that, that one body. In the Gospel of Matthew, it is stated, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We forget there is an actual way to have an adversary. It involves both humility and clarity about who we are and whose we are. In this current political movement, we may be at painful odds with one another, but that does not free us from our deepest commitments to love of God and love of neighbor. It invites Ubuntu. The United States is a nation, a physical geographic territory, a collective thing. But what is the meaning of that thing removed from the communities and the relationships that fill it? the ways in which we relate to one another, how we humanize and dignify each other, finding the ways in which we can improve our collective lives while also honoring our differences. America is in a constant state of becoming. 
We are not now what we were in 1776, 246 years ago. Throughout time, we keep expanding who we are and our level of inclusion. We are not perfect, but we are evolving. Margaret Rankle also said yesterday, I try to remind myself that Americans have also had reason to despair, to suspect that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was overly hopeful when he told us that the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. And I remember all the times when this wild, unstoppable, unwarranted hope, hope that motivated millions of people to long long numberless hours of painstaking work, managed to somehow yield unthinkable triumphs over those 246 years. I also want to have that hope that hope of becoming, that hope that we are on the arc that's bent towards justice. As we gather together on this Independence Day weekend, let's think a little differently about how we live with others in this vast country. Let us think of how we will make a home and an example for the generations who live, at, who live in this country and who will continue to dwell as the United States long after us. I see Will there in the pew. That's Will, right? Ben. And I think of the world that we might be giving to him. It makes me think of the famous words from Hamilton, the musical, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. We tell the story for future generations. We tell the story of freedom and how it's evolving. Of course we can protest. Of course we can speak up. Of course we can rally. But we tell the story by how we treat each other and how we look towards the future. Freedom is an evolving conversation and a dynamic concept. It starts with us. We can be a change agent by how we treat each other. In the words of Van Jones, when it gets harder to love, let's love harder. I come in contact with human beings from around the world in my work at Silver Hill. There is something extremely vulnerable and humbling about seeking treatment for a mental illness or an addiction that can no longer be managed And I know that the patient I treat is often very different from the public persona in their day-to-day life. I try and meet each patient in a space of vulnerability, in a place of humility. It's actually the deepest privilege of my work because there is something about being with someone who is suffering that allows me to enter into my suffering too and suffer with them. It's compassion. For me, this compassion and non-judgment is liberating, and it's probably why I feel so called to my work. Yet, every year, there are patients who test me. In Christmas of 2020, I had such a patient. For confidentiality purposes, I'll call him Mike. Mike woke every day and berated the staff in the most demeaning of ways. In the parlance of medical records, he had to continually be redirected. 
It's really a nice way of saying he was a pain in the ass. Uh, Whenever he wasn't in programming, he was planted in front of a television with his favorite news channel blaring proven fallacies and conspiracy theories. He was a Christian nationalist whose Jesus made him superior. He mocked the the hospital's COVID regulations at a precarious time in the pandemic, and he continually threatened to sue the hospital vocally over any minor inconvenience. And he told me every day in the weeks leading up to Christmas that he was leaving to celebrate Christmas off campus at a real church. I reminded him politely that off-campus passes were not only a violation of hospital policy at the time, but there was no church in driving distance of New Canaan that was having an in-person Christmas in December of 2020. And every time I told him this, he told me I was wrong and that he was going to do it. I I just stopped fighting. Well, I knew I was right, and that made me angrier and drove a wedge into that natural compassion that I often turned to. Of course, I treated him professionally as I could, but even seeing him put me in a position of self-defense rather than an open heart was a challenge. As Christmas approached and it was apparent to him that if he celebrated Christmas, it would actually be with me, I took the opportunity to find Christmas in him. There was no doubt in my mind that we probably had different ideas about what Christmas and the birth of Christ entailed and what it meant, but I needed to find some common ground. So I recruited him to do a reading at the service. I waited for him to retort that he would only read from his translation of the Bible, and I imagined where else he might challenge me. He didn't. He was strangely flattered that I asked. And then I asked him, Mike, tell me about a Christmas that was special to you. And he told me of a Christmas when his son was three, His extended family and his wife's extended family was there for a visit, and his son got a tricycle under the tree. He said the entire house was giddy as the boy rode his trike in the house and out of the house until he was so tired he just collapsed. And everyone in the house was in a great mood all day. And I said, so the secret was the trike? And Mike said, yeah, the trike played a starring role. But as our conversation ensued about the trike, he told me the best part was that we were all three years old again. We were all riding a tricycle and we all felt loved. We all felt loved. There are very few things that can unite us all other than complaints about the DMV, customer service calls from the cable company, and love. But at the heart of freedom is knowing that we are loved and showing it. In the famous final stanzas of Let America Be America Again, Langston Hughes captured that vision and promise, even as it emerged through legacies of tumult and injustice. Here's the final stanza. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the minds, 
the plants, the rivers, the mountains, the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states and make America again. Ultimately, that America is up to all of us as citizens and people of faith. In the spirit of the 4th of July and in the spirit of Ubuntu and in the words of Nelson Mandela, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. May it be so.